Because the whole world gone crazy! Just please, go nuts. What in God's holy name are you blathering about? I mean, really, explore the space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's down there somewhere. Let me take another look. All right, Beautiful Animals Podcast, episode 01010. Oh my gosh. Can you believe it? We made it to triple digits. Man, we're all, <laughs> we're all triple digits here. Yeah, man, we're, we've been already been doing, doing this a decade. Anyway, hey, welcome back to yet another episode of your favorite, your number one, the most influential and amazing podcast you've ever heard of. Beautiful Animals Podcast. <laughs> With your hosts, Tyler Cole and Andrew Brosh. Here we are. Here we freaking are. Hey, before we even begin, I just want to give a special thanks. Oh, what? And a special shout out to all you beautiful animals out oh, there. Yeah. You know who you are. I propose a toast. Mm. This yeah. one goes out to all those beautiful animals out there. <laughs> we take comfort in that, knowing <laughs> they're out there. <laughs> Guys, uh, we're going to... Take a little bit of a continued dip into the world of Alexander Bolt Humboldt. That's a weird way to say it. Continued dip. <laughs> a prolonged dip. We're back in the studio today to continue our discussion on Alexander von Humboldt's. Last week, we focused primarily on his life and, and time. His adventures. His adventures in South America and America, which were ample. <laughs> but, the, <laughs> but today, we're going to talk more about the repercussions of his life and his life's work, which were a series of publications, including the ones we mentioned last week, but specifically what he produced in the latter years of his life called Cosmos. Cosmos. Yeah. Isn't that the Carl Sagan show? It is the same name as the Carl Sagan show. But one, <laughs> one thing I found out from this book is that the word cosmos comes from ancient Greek. And it actually means something like the connectedness of all things with human perspective. And it's the it's presented as the opposite of chaos. Oh. Yeah. No shit. Yeah, yeah. So it's it, like I thought cosmos just literally meant like the universe. Yeah. Like co- as an alternative. But it actually means. I and mean, we could blame that on Carl Sagan probably. Yeah, but he was probably. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised at all if he had read Alexander von Humboldt's oh, yeah. Cosmos. Completely. And was like oh, this is what I should call my show because it's about this interconnectedness and the contribution that human beings play So Cosmos is kind of the inverse of entropy. Uh, Yeah, yeah, you could say that. I mean, well, the internet says that the definition of Cosmos is the universe seen as a well-ordered whole. Anyway, so I thought that was interesting. It's interesting because, yeah, I mean, that's kind of all like science and studying is like just keeping track of the chaos and trying to figure it out. Making connections, finding the patterns in the chaos. Finding the cosmos in the chaos, dude. Far fucking out. Anyway. Far fucking out. <clears throat> so today, we're going to talk about, you know, the latter years of Von Humboldt's life and the repercussions even then that his contributions to science and to philosophy and to politics were having on the world. So we're going to start with a little guy named Simone Bolivar. A little guy. You know, he wasn't little. <laughs> 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 but he's a huge person in history. So it's, uh, you know, how you call Big guy's Tiny Tim or whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah, he's a... Anyway, yeah. little Simone. <laughs> <laughs> Simone Bolivar. So he actually met Humboldt, so he got to he got to experience him in the flesh. They met shortly after Humboldt had returned from America while he was in Paris. And then I think we talked last week about... Did we talk last week about Bolivar walking to Rome from Paris? Yeah, I uh, yeah. actually looked it up on Google how it how would take... How far that is? Uh, it's 283 hours walking from Paris to Rome. 283 hours? Yeah. How many miles is that? Uh, It's in kilometers. 1,372 kilometers. That's far. That's like 600 miles or something. That seems kind of fast. Anyway, we're going to talk a lot about people walking today. There's another character at the very end of this episode who did a lot of walking to get places. <laughs> yeah. And I love it. But we'll get there. First, we're going to talk about Simone Bolivar. 852 miles. <laughs> nice. <laughs> So Humboldt met Bolivar while he was in Paris, and at this point in time, Humboldt was a little bit of an older man, and Bolivar was like a young dude in his 20s. I mean, Humboldt wasn't an older man. He was older than Bolivar. He wasn't an yeah. older man. He was in his 30s. Okay. He was like 36. He was um, like kind of right back, right when he got back. From, right when he got his... back when he first met him. And Bolivar was in his early 20s, and he was just like partying in Paris and having a good time. So Humboldt at the time didn't really take him all that seriously, but they had a little bit of an interchange, and uh, later on we'll see that Humboldt actually really inspired Bolivar in a lot of ways. And later on, they exchanged a lot of letters and correspondences yep. toward, you know, into the ending of 
Humboldt's life. But just to talk about Bolivar a little bit, while he was in Rome, he was hanging out with some friends, and, and remember, he had walked to Rome from Paris, which is how far? 283 hours. Jesus. 852 miles. He did that because he felt depressed. He was like, I'm not feeling so good. I better go for a walk <laughs> in Paris. And then he ended up in Rome. <laughs> did he bring any stuff with him or what? I have no idea, dude. <laughs> you know what? This is kind of funny because we're also going to talk about John Muir walking from Indiana to Florida. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Like just, what? It's <laughs> a bunch of Forrest Gumps out there. Dude, a bunch of Forrest Gumps. While in Rome, Bolivar and the friends he was traveling with, there was one day Bolivar was walking, he was talking with his friends, and he just like went up onto this hill by this church and he said to his guys, like, we're going to do it. We need to liberate Venezuela. Like, I'm freaking serious. Bolivar was the son of, like, some wealthy Creole ranchers. He was, like, kind of part of the upper crust of Venezuela. So he had been there. He wasn't just pulling this out of nowhere. No, he, he was from there. Oh, yeah. He was the son of ranchers in Venezuela. <coughs> he was out in Paris to party, right? Oh, he yeah. was wealthy. Remember, anyone that did anything in this time period was wealthy. Yeah, yeah. You know, even the people that liberated the U.S. were wealthy people that didn't want to pay taxes yeah. noticed the general instability of the European nations that were all at war with each other, mostly because of Napoleon said, fuck it. Now's our time. We're out of here. We'll get into that. <laughs> so two years later, Bolivar was back in Caracas in Venezuela and he arrived as a revolutionary in that two years. He had grown up a lot. He had gotten serious and he decided this is what we're going to do. So he was filled with, I mean, he had been in France and remember even Humboldt said that like, the spirit of France, even though Napoleon was kind of taking it in a different direction, was all about democracy and equal rights and idealism because the revolution wasn't that long before, mm-hmm. right? And so all these big ideas about like freedom and equal rights and express, you know, people's right to decide their own government, those were all like in the air in Paris. And he brought all those back to Venezuela with, with him and began to start revolutions. Bolivar would... I mean, this we got. This is why I was saying we got to do a whole podcast on this guy because the whole the wars for independence in South America are numerous and extensive, and there's a lot of back and forth. And they're still ongoing. I mean, yeah, yeah they are still ongoing. That's a good point. We could do a whole freaking thing. I mean, South America is so complicated. But anyway, he returns and begins the war in South America for independence. It would take over 20 years before the Spanish were completely removed from the continent. So it, he's, he starts it, and it takes him 20 years to really get it done. So this is in 1807 when he finally gets back, and he's ready to rock and roll. I went over this a little bit before. South America was all pretty much under the authority of Spain, but it was divided into four vice royalties, which are like larger yeah. states. Yeah. But anyway, so there was these four sort of entities that they had to you know, declare independence from. And the South American states weren't their own states. So he was, you know, started Venezuela War, started Colombia War, and then these would end up settling into the states that they are today, the countries that they are today. Yeah. One of the kind of like rallying cries that Bolivar would return to over and over again during his drive to inspire revolution among the public were, were the images that Humboldt had put into his books. Because his travels in South America, they were blew Humboldt's mind so much just because of the beauty and the savage nature of the whole continent. And so Bolivar would repeatedly hearken to those things to ignite pride in the native populations or the revolutionary populations of South America. To be like, we're South American, like this is our continent, like fuck the Spanish, get them out of here. And so he said, Bolivar was quoted as saying, Humboldt awakened South America with his pen. He brought the sort of national consciousness to that continent that they needed to push out the colonizers. Get them out of here, man. Humboldt's still very well known in South America, much more than here. Spain's hold over its colonies in the Americas had already started in a week and when the French took the territory that would later be purchased in the Louisiana Purchase from the Spanish. They basically took it and then flipped it and sold it to Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. Right? I think we mentioned that last week. That was like kind of the beginning of the end for them because then back in Europe, Napoleon was at war with Spain and he basically defeated Spain and deposed the Spanish king in 1808. Since the empire was weakened like from the inside, revolutions just started to pop up. In 1809, Quito declares independence. Remember, that's the city in the middle of the Andes. Yeah. Right? In 1810, uh, Buenos Aires declares independence and then also in 1810 in new spain miguel hidalgo declared independence and that would later become mexico i've heard of there you heard of mexico yeah there's a new one isn't there uh yeah yeah but it's uh it's a little different (laughs) (laughs) anyway um 
a lot of people were declaring independence all at the same time. Bolivar was basically trying to liberate all of South America. He felt that if just one or two cities or states or people were declaring independence at, at a time, Spain would just go around and crush each of them in turn. But he felt like if he could get everybody to declare independence oh, all at, at the once. same time, yeah. then Spain wouldn't be able to handle it, especially since Napoleon was fucking them up back in uh, Europe. Back at home. Yeah, so Spain was in a serious crisis period right now. Things didn't always go <laughs> Bolivar's way. On July 5th, 1811, the Creole elite of Venezuela declared independence. Very shortly thereafter, this huge earthquake tears up Venezuela. And, like right after they declared independence. It killed 50% of the population oh, of man. the capital of Venezuela. It's pretty fucked up. Yeah. They'd... Bolivar survived and he said, you know what? Fuck it. We're still declaring independence. Like they had just declared independence. Then most of their, there's this terrible natural disaster. It levels the whole city. It kills half of the population, including half of the army. Bolivar says, screw it. We're, instead of like being like, oh, okay, never mind. Please help us. He's like, fuck it. We're still independent. Yeah. The royalists show up. You know, the royalist armies show up a little bit thereafter. They were sailing across the oceans. So the earthquake didn't mess them up. Yeah. And they just crush Bolivar's rebellion oh. in its tracks. Like right after he declares Venezuela like its own state. Oh, it's um, only a year after, actually. At the end of the First Republic in Venezuela, it's over in 1812. Not even a full year later, because it was in July that they declared independence. So Bolivar flees, I think, to Cuba. He'll return, though, oh, later return on. Oh, Bolivar. Yeah, in October of 1812, Bolivar shows up in Colombia now, and he starts rabble-rousing and begins the guerrilla war and slowly gains control of Colombia. One of the notes, <laughs> one of the things that he had that gave him the advantage over the Spanish is he had maps from Humboldt. Oh. Of the region. So he knew the area like a lot better than the Spanish. The Spanish were still using, you know, bureaucracies, right? They don't always have like the latest and greatest maps or technology or whatever. So the royalists were still using their old maps that they'd gotten. Bolivar had access to Humboldt's maps, which were newer and a lot more accurate. Yeah. So he was able to have these, wage these guerrilla campaigns against the Spanish. They didn't never knew where he was going to pop up, and he knew exactly where he was going. Again, his dream is still of uniting South America as a whole against Spain. He yeah. believes that if one of them is enslaved, they all are. This continues on again for decades. <laughs> we're not going to be able to get into all of it now, but essentially, like, I mean, it's just a crazy back and forth. We're going to have to do a whole episode on it. Many victories, many defeats, a lot of chaos and disunity. Even after victories, you know, there would be other people that rebelled against Bolivar. Like, there was a lot of problems. It was messy. But during that whole time period, uh, Bolivar and Humboldt were still communicating by letter. Humboldt admitted to Bolivar that his initial assessment of him was wrong. He was like, hey, when I first met you, I thought you were just a party or I thought you were just a dream or I didn't think you meant it. But like, you're amazing. Um, keep it go- Keep it up. Later, Humboldt was quoted as saying, you are the founder of freedom to your beautiful fatherland. I mean, Humboldt was always enamored and enchanted with South America. Yeah. And so Bolivar's quest to like liberate it from the colonists, he was 100% behind him. He loved it. Because remember, he hated the impact of the Spanish on there. Like, he had seen the desertification and the denuding of hills, and he was like, okay, this has got to stop. This is not good. And uh, it was just Spain, pretty much, that had the entire South America. Yeah, pretty much. There wasn't really any Portugal else. had oh, some yeah. of it. But in addition, Bolivar was able to get resources from other countries more easily outside of the Americas because of Humboldt's writing about South America. People were just, was more in their heads, so. Giving them some good publicity. He gave them really good publicity. He was, again, at, Humboldt was already one of the most famous people in the world at this point. So, like, him being behind the revolutions in South America made everything a lot easier for Bolivar. And their correspondence would continue on until Humboldt's death. So, Humboldt, as he got older, I think we talked a little bit about him being depressed in Prussia, in Berlin, and moving back to Paris. Yeah. And it kind of woke him up a little bit, and he was able to write... At a certain point, he had written many things, but he had to move back to Berlin, and he lived there for a long time. And he he started to get the idea to write uh, this series that would encapsulate everything, that just would lay out all of the data and all of his ideas and all of his works in one multi-volume book series, and he named it Cosmos. He released Volume 1, and it was like a huge success. People were really into it. Then he released Volume 2, which was also really good, but it had a lot more of like... Volume one was 
like meteorology and geology and then volume two was more botany and animals and so it was like a little more earthbound and it was supposed to just be two volumes between those two volumes is supposed to kind of encapsulate the entirety of his understanding of the world just the natural like yeah the natural world and the connectedness between weather geology animals climate because again his main contribution was like or a big part of his life thesis was the whole idea of Naturgamelda, right that like everything is a connected whole and it all works together on different aspects. And one thing that affects something over here is going to affect something over there, right? So he tries to put this all together, and he tries to put it all into these two volumes titled Cosmos between 1845 and 1847. But the thing was, science is continuing to progress, yeah. <laughs> right? And Humboldt, being the guy that he is, like issues those two volumes. They're amazing. They're beautiful. They're like really Humboldt style where he's like, blending scientific data with the romanticism of the beauty of his trip to South America. He's like blending art and science together yeah. really well in those like, two volumes. Like he really with a juices solid it, you know? Experience too. Yeah, with the experience behind it. But then after he writes those two volumes, science continues to progress. He had started Cosmos with the whole idea that it was going to be a whole framework to like encapsulate all of science and nature. <laughs> yeah. So when there's more science, he's like, okay, well, I got to shove it in there. <laughs> yeah. So he decides to write a third volume, which is not as good <laughs> as the first two. The third season sometimes isn't. Yeah. Uh, and then he writes a fourth volume. Basically the same thing is going on. But when he's writing, like at this point, it's between 1850 and 1858. And he's already in his 80s at this point, I believe. So it was in volume three and four where they like, what were the general topics? I mean, he was, was just, just trying to keep up with advancements in science and technology okay. so he was just trying to include more data to the point yeah and that's the thing that's why they were a little more dry it's like his main point that everything is connected he made in the first two volumes yeah and then the third one he's like but also this science yeah and then and it he, was just science that other people had created and not yeah him, it so. wasn't his personal yeah. contributions but he was just trying to plug it all into his whole idea anyway he <laughs> he lived until he was 89 he called his last decade his his improbable years because <laughs> yeah. he didn't expect to be alive, and he he was quoted as saying like while he was trying to write the fourth volume that it was it was just a race against time like yeah. he's just trying to get it out before he dies. <laughs> but even after that, I mean, he was still active and like into his late eighties doing stuff and doing little experiments. And the other thing he was doing a lot of he spent all of the money that he got on either making these books. Or giving money to other young scholars mm-hmm. so they could do their work as well. Little young fuck around or fight outers. Yeah, little <laughs> other fuck around and fight outers. One of the people that picked up the first couple of volumes of this work, Cosmos, was a little guy named Charles Darwin. <laughs> Another little guy. Shut <laughs> everybody's a little guy <laughs> today. <laughs> Just because they're so big in history, uh, yeah. you know, they're going to be little in this podcast. I like it. I yeah. like it. Anyway. <laughs> well, beautiful little animals. Beautiful little animals. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Charles Darwin, who loved beautiful little animals. Uh, was <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> I know. Uh, he was thoroughly inspired by some of Humboldt's earlier works, Views of Nature, which was kind of just his narrative of his whole adventure in South America. That he It was his first publication after he got back. Darwin was completely inspired by that his whole journey on the hms beagle it wouldn't have happened if he hadn't read humboldt's books yeah he brought i mean he wrote that darwin wrote that that's not like an opinion darwin wrote like i'm out here following in humboldt's footsteps (laughs) (laughs) he wrote that in his journal humboldt it's hard to explain like how famous humboldt was like you know how famous game of thrones was when it was good (laughs) like everybody was talking about it yeah everybody was sharing the experience as it came out Nobody would shut the hell up about him. Yeah, that's how humble it was. Like, at, at when his books came out, everybody would read him. Everybody would talk about him. And people would send letters to each other about humble. People would try and write him letters. Actually, at this point in Humboldt's life, he's writing his correspondence. He's writing 5,000 letters a year. That's... How many letters is that a day, dude? That's fucking at least 10. I know. It's more. I don't even write 10 text messages He's reading a day. and writing, like, 5,000 letters a year. That's gnarly. He says, he puts an ad in the paper saying, stop writing me letters. <laughs> I'm like, shit you not. He's so famous at this point. Like, he, he puts an ad out there. He's like, please give an old man some rest. <laughs> but he wouldn't, he would not hire a secretary. Yeah. Like, he wouldn't do it. Yeah, he wanted, the same way. 
So he wouldn't hire a secretary. So he he was still trying to maintain all of this correspondence on his own to the point that he literally asked people to slow down so he could get some rest and get some work done. (laughs) Yeah. He was like, I need to get some work done. I need to finish my book. Could you please stop writing me letters? Anyway, so Darwin was inspired by him. He goes on this boat called HMS Beagle which does is supposed to circumnavigate the globe. I mean, I'm not going to go into the full story of Darwin, but he goes to the Galapagos Islands. Not in this episode. Yeah, we'll do another one. He sees the difference between animals on one island and another, and he comes up with this theory that would become a book called The Origin of Species, which is where we get the theory of evolution. And he credits his understanding and his beginning inklings about evolution to Humboldt's idea that nature is connected, right? Because it just wasn't part of of the understanding of the world that the environment could impact the shape of an animal. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that connection was part of the idea of Natura Gemelda that Humboldt gave to the world on the day. This is crazy on the day that Charles Darwin, after his many adventures, send writes the manuscript, uh, the day that he sends the manuscript of the origin of species to his publisher is the day that Humboldt dies. Oh, no shit. No shit, dude. So he didn't get to read it? No, sadly. Although Darwin said he was going to send, he said he's quoted as saying, like, I'll send a copy to the old man so yeah. he can see, <laughs> yeah. like, what it is. So Humboldt dies on uh, the 6th of May, 1859. He had suffered from a stroke a few years earlier and then made, like, a miraculous recovery and was still writing and doing shit. Uh, but then he finally dies. So did he finish that fourth volume? He finished the fourth volume, and he had started the fifth. Oh, nice. He couldn't stop himself. Yeah, yeah. Like, it was uncontainable. <laughs> Even his publishers were like, stop. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you on are. a race against time, but then he wins that race and starts another and race. And he continues. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I'm just going to keep going. Until and then he's like, I can't win this race. <laughs> yeah. He almost did. I mean, yeah. until he was 89, which was, like, yeah. ridiculous for back then. He had money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he uh, Humboldt dies on the 6th of May, 1859, the same day that Darwin sends his manuscript to his publisher for what would become Origin of Species. Humboldt's death is, like, shocks the whole freaking world. I mean, it doesn't shock the world. Yeah. But everyone expected. everyone is affected by it, right? I mean, he's more famous, as famous as Michael Jackson. I mean, he was one of the, he was one of the most, if not the mo- most famous person in the world at this point in time. Yeah, like so you said. So his death he... is, like, reverberates around the globe. There's a huge, uh, you know, state funeral in Berlin, you know, and there's a procession and all the students and naturalists are all out there walking with his um, casket and everything. And he's buried in the same graveyard as his mother. Even in back in New York, there's a lot of mourning and all of the or the Geological Society in New York has a big like speech and big service to yeah. mark the occasion of his death. Yeah, it's it's a huge deal. Yeah, like you said, there's a lot of stuff in like South America named after him. And there's even a fair amount of stuff here named after him. Yeah, and I mean, to be yeah. honest, there was a lot more named after him. Like, he he was so famous. He actually said, he made a joke when he was getting older. He's like, if they don't stop naming things after me, like, I don't know what's going to happen. Like, he, he <laughs> joked about how yeah. many ships were named, like, USS Humboldt and HMS Humboldt, how many streets there were, Humboldt Street, how many, like, rivers were Humboldt River. There were so many things named after him. He was world famous, but we don't see it so much anymore here in the U.S. because after World War One, there was a big push to like get rid of German popular idols. Mm-hmm. So we we changed a lot of streets that were named Humboldt Street to be like Taft Street yeah. or Washington Street. Like we we kind of scrubbed a lot of our German history and like joy and appreciation for German people and yeah. the German public. After World War One, and, and especially then, after World War Two, yeah. <laughs> we didn't get it back right after World War Two. No, oh, weird. Yeah, and there's, I mean, even after, I mean, because I think there's obviously there's Humboldt County here in California, and there's, I think there's even a Humboldt County in Oregon, and probably several other states. I mean, some things held on; not everything got changed. Counties are harder to change their yeah. names. <laughs> I think there's even one in Idaho. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's Everywhere. the thing. They're all over the place. It's funny because we don't really know about them now. We're not really taught about mm-hmm. them unless you listen to an amazing podcast like yeah. this one. Yeah, and if you go to the school named Humboldt and you look up, try and find out who it was named after, and then you look at the Wikipedia page and you say, "Oh, that's too much to read." Yeah. So you have to wait ten years and then start a podcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like I mentioned before, on the occasion of Humboldt's death. At the, what did I say, Geological Society in New mm-hmm. York. Yeah, yeah. They give a big eulogy and there's a whole celebration. 
But this one, not I mean, yeah, celebration of life kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. This guy who was actually a member of the Geological Society misses it. This guy named George Perkins Marsh. He was on his way back to Vermont, basically because he had failed <laughs> at starting a business and becoming successful in New York. But this guy, I mention him because he's one of the most immediate, like, sort of spiritual successors to Humboldt. George Perkins Marsh was an incredibly intelligent person. He spoke and wrote fluently in 20 different languages. 20. 20. I don't even know 20 different words. No, he was uh, an, an incredibly smart guy. He was, people called him a walking encyclopedia. He was one of those people that could remember basically everything that yeah. he'd ever read. People said that he could understand the contents of a page after glancing at it, like he could read the whole thing. We have a nerd alert. Yeah, big time. But he was a funny guy because he was a failure at pretty much everything he did. <laughs> he was super smart. I wouldn't know anything about that. <laughs> yeah, he failed at everything. Like he started a mill and it failed. He like started, he tried to be a shepherd and he couldn't do that. <laughs> he like tried farming and he couldn't do that. He wanted to be an entrepreneur, but every business decision he made was a failure. <laughs> he couldn't do anything right. And he knew that he wanted to travel the world, but he never had any money because he, could, he was not <laughs> successful. <laughs> he decided to try and get a job as a foreign diplomat because he's like, okay, maybe someone will pay me to go hang out in another country. <laughs> maybe somebody will pay me to go away. Yeah. <laughs> so he decided to- Really identifying with this guy. I know. <laughs> and he got super lucky and he, uh, he had been a senator for a little while. You know, again- Small, smaller world, smaller country. <laughs> yeah, there's he a lot. He was a failure at everything, but also he was a senator for a while. So I mean, that says a lot about anyway. Anyway, so he had connections in the State Department. So he was granted a position in in Constantinople in Turkey as the American ambassador to mm -hmm. Turkey. So he and his wife traveled to Constantinople. And he was stoked. He wrote like to his friends when he got the job. He's like, it's great. I'm barely going to hang out at work. I'm going to be out of Constantinople for most of the time and just travel. <laughs> like, fuck him. <laughs> like, nice. Because all he really wanted was to travel. He didn't want the job. So he and his wife, they go and they start kind of traveling around that part of the world from there. And he was in a, a huge fan of Humboldt as well. He had read Views of Nature. He had read Cosmos. And he loved them. And he loved the melding of science and nature that Humboldt was capable of. So what kind of time period was this guy alive? You said he was in New York, like, the time... That yeah, the he, he was, like, in his 30s when Humboldt died. He was born March 15th, 1801, and he died July 23rd, 1882. At this point, he was in his 50s or something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So he's failed a lot of stuff for a long time. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he and his wife, they're in Constantinople, and they're traveling around that part of the world, and they're, and they're checking things out. And he's got all of these stories from Humboldt kind of in the back of his head. He actually wanted to be ambassador to Germany because he he loved the German people and he wanted to be around Humboldt's old haunts. Oh, right? yeah. But he ended up being the ambassador to Turkey. He was close enough. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. while they're traveling around through the Middle East and down into Egypt and Nubia, Marsh is observing the landscape. The observations that he makes, he's like, okay, this place has got some real history. Like you can see the temples and the pyramids and all these old edifices of human activity. But more than that, what Marsh is seeing, because Marsh was also an avid outdoorsman and uh -huh. like loved being outside. He's seeing the marks of human activity from thousands and thousands of years of agricultural cultivation that had just like destroyed the soil. So as he's out there hanging out in the Middle East, he's seeing like these deserts that were literally created just from overuse of the ground. Like he yeah. can see how all the hills have been ground down and eroded and worn away from thousands and thousands of years of agriculture. And it kind of blows his mind. He almost has, it's during this trip, this trip through the Middle East and into Egypt and back up where he's looking at how along the Nile river, there are irrigated fields of rice and wheat and other grains, but there's no wildlife. There's no wild space. There's no wild, there's no woods, there's no ground cover, there's no wild anything. Yeah. It's all over-agriculturalized and over-used by human beings because it's because we've been using it for too long, <laughs> yeah. right? And it, it starts to sink in for him that by cultivating the soil and using it for agriculture and cutting down trees and grazing animals, we're quote, destroying unquote, the environment. Quote, unquote, improving it. Yeah, we're destroying the environment. It sinks in for him. Like, this trip gives him the same sort of epiphany moment that 
Humboldt had with Nitergamelda, yeah, but in, for in Argentina, right? Yeah, but for the destruction of the earth by human beings and specifically by mass agriculture. After this journey and after they end up back in the United States, he's back in Vermont and he's struck by like, okay, that's a really old world out there. And I'll just note, when I read this part of the book, it reminded me of when I read this book that I lent you actually, Guns, Germs, and Steel. In the last chapter, he talks about how, he talks about this a little bit, how the Middle East was not always a desert. Well, it's referred to as the Fertile Crescent in like every history like, I this know. is where civilization, the cradle of civilization, the Fertile Crescent. Yeah, um, and, and it's, like, always, it's always been curious to me, isn't that a desert? Like, how is that the Fertile Crescent? Yeah, modern day Afghanistan and Israel. and Yeah, that had always kind of bothered me in the back of my head. Yeah. But not until I read Guns, Dreams, and Steel, and I was reminded of it in this book, that I realized that the Middle East, like those deserts, many of the deserts in Egypt and in the Middle East were not deserts originally. Yeah. We made them. We made them into deserts. Human being, we created those deserts long before even human-made climate change was influenced by uh, you know, cars, and CO two emissions. Yeah, yeah. we destroyed the soil and created deserts. Yeah, um, we've been destroying the earth for a long ass time. But I didn't realize that, and and this guy didn't realize it until he took those trips to those areas, and he's like, "Holy shit, this was made this way. Mm. It didn't come this way. This was made this way by us." So then, when he returns to Vermont. And he's looking around because during this period, it's the 1860s, right? Or the 1850s, right before the Civil War. He's looking around and he's like in shock because he can see it happening to America. He's like, this is young and fertile still, but here we are cutting down trees at an alarming rate. Farming and grazing animals on huge swaths of land that used to be wild areas. We're doing this right now to America. After having all these experiences, he he starts writing a book that ends up being called Man and Nature. He wants to call it Man and the De- and the Destruction of the Natural Rhythms of Nature, like a little <laughs> bit more aggressive. <laughs> but his long. publisher was like, no, nah, dude, just call it Man and Nature. <laughs> and he's like, okay. Short and sweet. But it's basically, he's he's credited as being the very first environmentalist because uh-huh. he, that whole, that book is just a treatise on we need to slow the fuck down. We need to look around us. We're destroying the habitable planet. We're not going to destroy the earth, but we're going to not be able to live here. Yeah. He was the first person to be like, raise their red flag. Like, we're fucking up. We're yeah. messing this place up. We're not going to be able to live here anymore. Stop. Pump the brakes. We need to start conservation. Yeah. That's crazy. He made that observation in like the 1800s. And he published this book in 1864. I mean, we've been doing nothing but farming since then. So he was observing it in, in the in Egypt where it had been happening for like 4,000 years. That's the thing. And so yeah. that's only 150 4, years since years. then. Yeah. yeah. We're a huge step removed now, even though things aren't perfect and we have cars and we have other problems to deal with. We treat our wildlife and our wild spaces a lot better now than we did in the early you know in the 1800s yeah in this country like when people were just killing all of the buffalo (laughs) and cutting down all of the trees like fuck it you know there was just a total disregard for conservation there wasn't the word conservation at this point perkins marsh first environmentalist big fucking deal abraham lincoln actually i believe encouraged by perkins marsh was the first person to start setting aside preserving forests and saying, oh, we got to conserve these forests. But it would happen a lot more later under Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think I'm going to skip Henry David Thoreau and jump right into Muir. Oh, yeah. Just remind me real quick. Who's Henry David Thoreau? Yeah. We're, I don't want to talk about it in the episode because we're running short on time. <laughs> but <laughs> Henry David Thoreau. Have you ever heard of Walden? No? I don't think so, no. Okay. So <laughs> when Henry David Thoreau was like in his mid-20s, he had a sort of quarter-life crisis or whatever, and he decided to just go... He went to this property, which was actually owned by Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was like a famous author at the time even. He was like 15 years his senior. He was in his 40s. Anyway, Thoreau says, fuck it, I'm going to go live by this pond, right? Yeah. <laughs> he goes to this pond. My pond. <laughs> yeah. He builds himself a little hut, a little 10 by 15 hut with just a fireplace, a bed, and a desk, basically. And he just lives off the land at this pond for two years. And he he was a big fan of Humboldt, so he had read, like, Views of Nature, like, the narrative and Cosmos. He had copies of them with him. So he was into the idea of, like, nature writing. So he just, like, kind of, he spends these two years at Walden, and he's, like, he takes all these detailed journal entries, and he starts to, like, kind of get into the feel of nature, the passage of the seasons, and, like, 
what flowers come out when and what little tweaks of nature precede them, the way the soil looks before the plants finally flower and when that happens and why that happens. And he just, like, gets really fucking in it, dude. Like, remember, like, you know how into drywall I get sometimes? (laughs) Once (laughs) in a while. Yeah. He gets that into, like, all of the natural rhythms that occur around this pond. So is he there, like, is he, did he not bring any food or anything? He's like just living off what he can get. No, I mean, he's, he's not that far from town. Like he still goes to the store or whatever. (laughs) Like goes and has dinner with his family. Like he's just outside of town. The 1860s equivalent of a grocery store. Yeah. But all he's doing is being a hermit. (laughs) Like he's just out there hanging out by the pond every day for like two years. Anyway, he, he just gets really into it. He gets really in deep in observing nature and thinking about nature. He doesn't write his book, which is called Walden. Till like seven years later, the, the kind of the contribution to the narrative of Humboldt that he adds to it is like you don't have to travel to South America to understand the connectedness of nature yeah. and to see the beauty of it changing throughout the year and to see yeah. the difference between, you know, spring and summer, or the difference between this side of the pond and the other side of the pond. He kind of takes the macro or the, yeah, it takes the bigger perspective and makes it, brings it in small. <clears throat> yeah. It's like, you can see all these observations of nature right in your backyard. You can, yeah. Even if you, even if you don't even have a backyard, you can probably see one just on the friggin' sidewalk in front of your house. Like, exactly. Medium, yeah. Like, and he compares like the Andes mountains to like the hills nearby. I think he's in Connecticut and like, yeah. And, you know, the Amazon jungle to the little woods that he's in, but just reveling in it just as much. Like, it doesn't have to be so dramatic and huge. Like, it can just be this small, the beauty of small things and the beauty of, yeah. like, the thing you see every single day is just as potent as the beauty of, like, a grand adventure. Yeah, man, nature is fucking everywhere. I know. Yeah. Like, so, even sometimes inside your house, sometimes even. Yeah, a lot of the time. <laughs> Actually, we're going to, well, that's a good segue into John Muir, because, like, when he was living in Yosemite, he had built a little hut in Yosemite over a brook like over a little stream and there were ferns growing inside his house <laughs> there were like the frogs would jump around in oh, his nice. house another person that was super inspired by Humboldt uh, was a big guy named John Muir <laughs> big guy huh? yeah John Muir was born in Scotland but I think his family emigrated to Canada when he was kind of young I didn't really go deep into John Muir because I really want to do a full on deep dive episode he, about John Muir yeah. actually one of my favorite characters from history <laughs> of all time at one point when I was a student like young baby child student. Yeah. I did a report on John Muir. Fuck yeah. I literally don't remember any of it. Dang. But I feel like I was like fourth grade or fifth. And it was like. He's so cool. Here's some highlights of his life. (laughs) (laughs) So he read Humboldt's views of nature and at a certain point, sort of a similar quarter life crisis. I think he was in his late twenties. A lot of shit happens in your late twenties. Yeah. He decided he wanted to go, he he got the fever for South America after reading Humboldt's books. He's like, I got to go. I got to see all that. But he didn't do it. You know, life gets in the way. He's working in a sawmill in Canada. One day he's working in the sawmill and he's got to tighten a leather band on a big saw. Yeah. And I guess you do that. I guess you you don't stop. No, you can't stop (laughs) production. So I guess he's got to like tighten it while it's moving. I don't really understand. (laughs) So he's using a file on it. To unloosen like this stitching where so he can restitch it tighter. And whatever happens, it kicks back and the file stabs him in the eye. Oh, goddamn. He like looks down in his hands and like liquid starts dripping out of his eye onto his hands. Liquid. From inside his eye. Oh. So he ends up losing his vision. Well, damn. I bet that was in the report that I wrote in fourth grade, but Mm. I don't remember it. Solid. (laughs) (laughs) So he loses his vision for a while. And while he's recuperating. Oh, just for a while. That's good. Well, he doesn't know it's. Not permanently yeah, until yeah. later. But anyway, he's so he loses his vision. He doesn't know if he's going to be able to get it back. The young kids are reading him stories and stuff. <laughs> and he's just like, fuck, dude, I'm never going to see the Amazon. I'm never going to see the Andes. Well, you can see out of one eye, right? No, both of them. Oh, he loses really? his vision in both of his oh, eyes. No shit. He goes completely blind. That's fucked. For a few weeks. Slowly his vision comes back. But after that experience, he's like, okay, I'm not fucking waiting. Yeah. Right? So he like says bye to his family. He takes a train, I think, to Indiana. And then he walks from Indiana to Florida. Nice. <laughs> How far is that? <laughs> what city in Indiana? And what city in Florida? Just, I don't know. Just do Indiana to Florida. Let's Flights from uh, Indianapolis to Fort Wayne are $62. I don't know why he didn't just take that. <laughs> <laughs> right. 1,036 miles, 339 hours. That's longer than Rome to Paris. I know. It's I know. It's 1,000 fucking miles instead of 1,000 kilometers. <laughs> <laughs> miles like are way bigger. Yeah. I think it takes him 45 days. So he makes it to Florida. So he, he, this is his, he's setting out on his epic journey to South America. He's following in Humboldt's footsteps, right? He ties his journal onto his belt. He brings his plant press. He has a small backpack, and he starts walking to Florida, right? Mm-hmm. He gets to Florida, 
and he immediately gets malaria, <laughs> which I guess he used to get in Florida. <laughs> I think you still get in Do Florida. Do you still get in Florida? I have no idea. I'm never I... going to Florida. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, he gets malaria, and he's laid low for weeks. He's like, malaria gives you, like, tremors, gives you shakes, yeah. and horrible fevers. Anyway, he's got malaria for several weeks. Brutal. He goes away. He gets on a ship, and he heads to Cuba. But he's, like, still sickly while he's in Cuba, and he decides, like, I, I can't go to South America. Like, I'm not going to be able to make it. Well, I mean, there's more malaria, I think, in South America than Yeah, that's why Florida. he doesn't want to go. Yeah. He doesn't want to go. So he changes his mind and says he's going to go to California. So he goes back to Florida. He goes back to the eastern seaboard of the United States. At this point in time, the fastest way from the east coast to the west coast is by boat. So he takes a ship to Panama. And then he takes a train from the east coast of Panama to the west coast of Panama. Cause it is pre-canal. Yes, pre-canal <laughs> times. So he takes a 50-mile train ride. And he even says like in his journal, he's like, well, I can see the mountains of South America now, but this is the only time I'm going <laughs> to see them. <laughs> I'm just going to be walking in my mosquito net here. <laughs> yeah. So then he, he catches a ship up to San Francisco, which is the main port on the west coast at this point in time. You know, I have heard of San Francisco. Have you? He lands in San Francisco. And he's in San Francisco for like a day and he hates it, right? <laughs> nice. He hates it. This is San Francisco at this point in time is a big ass boom town. Because that was right before the gold rush, right? I feel like it's before the gold rush, but it's, uh, no, it's after the gold rush because the gold rush is 1849 and this is in the 1860s. So it's about 20 years post gold rush. Yeah. I mean, I think it's still going on. It's not like the crazy yeah, yeah. gold fever but there's still a lot of yeah, and it's, it's still a gone. bustling crazy ass city but he hates it he's like i hate this place yeah that's I actually get the same feeling every time i go there yeah so what does he decide to do because this is his style he's like fuck it i'm walking to the sierras <laughs> right well he probably was originally gonna walk to florida probably but the sierras were in the way yeah so he just starts walking so he as he starts walking from san francisco to the sierra nevadas the sierra nevada mountain range like <laughs> comes down from the north toward the south and it's like 180 miles from the west coast and it kind of mirrors the shape of the west coast of california in between san francisco and the sierra nevada mountain range is the central valley of california when muir gets out of the sort of coastal ranges near san francisco and gets down into the central valley of california at this point in time it's one huge wildflower meadow the whole thing from top to bottom all the way across is just wildflowers. It's a huge meadow. And Muir describes it. He's just like blown away. He's in a sea of wildflowers. This is like in the spring, right? So it's perfect timing. I mean, in the next couple of decades, he'll he'll watch this sea of wildflowers get plowed and trampled and become the agricultural belt for most of the United States, yeah. like fruits and vegetables. It just be, it all becomes farms. It's yeah, amazing I mean, farmland. Kind of staggering how much the United States produce comes from just that valley. Almost all of it. Yeah. Like almost all of the fresh fruit and vegetables. I mean, it, it's not all of it, but it's I mean, just corn, such a huge amount. I the mean, the corn, corn and the Idaho wheat or, is all in the or, middle yeah. <laughs> and everything else is from here. Yeah. But before that happened, it was just a huge wildflower meadow and Muir is like immediately just like taken by it and completely blown away he's like alternatively like skipping and like crawling and looking at all the bugs he's under the flowers literally frolicking he is literally frolicking from san francisco all the way to the foothills <laughs> just through a beautiful meadow of wildflowers and he's just like oh wow this he's like california is the best place in the world <laughs> other than that, san francisco <laughs> that mother frolicker yeah he loves it and so then he, he continues onward, he gets to the foothills, and he makes his way into the Sierra Nevadas and ends up finding his way to Yosemite Valley, which is an incredibly dramatic, in incredibly beautiful, U-shaped, glacier-carved valley. The cliffs of El Capitan are 3,000 feet straight up from the valley floor, straight up granite rock. Half Dome is like 3,500 feet straight up from the valley floor. It's the word awesome, the word awe-inspiring <laughs> only really applies to Yosemite. <laughs> like yeah. everything else it's used on is a waste. That place is incredible. Hey, For man, those... I know of an awesome burrito place nearby yeah. here, and that applies. Totally. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, the, two, the two cases, the word awesome applies, but exactly. that's about it. Yeah. So Mira gets to Yosemite and is like, of course overjoyed literally yelling and whooping and screaming <laughs> this guy's so cool i love john Muir. he just he he brings such expression and joy to the appreciation of nature like he just he 
he lets it all out. He's just yeah. like, yeah, mate. Like he just I feel like we've done that once or twice. We've like driven and had to pull the car over and got and out just and just start yell. yelling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You got to be able to do that. You got to yeah. be able to do that. Oh, fuck. I wish I remember the quote. At one point, Muir, like later on, he takes this, he takes this other scientist over to Yosemite and Muir is just like, like screaming. <laughs> look at this yeah, shit. Like, look, yeah, look at this fucking shit. shit. And the other guy's like, mm-hmm. And Muir just turns to him. He's like, do you even have a fucking soul? Like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> like, he just can't believe that the guy's not immediately enchanted yeah. by it but so he goes to yosemite and it, this is the beginning of his love affair with yosemite valley yeah. he i mean he sees the sequoias he loves the sequoias he's like again alternating but from like looking staring up at these 200 foot tall 2000 year old trees yeah. 300 foot tall and like then looking down at the wildflowers and the ferns and the bugs like he's just enamored with all of it all yeah. at once at this point in time, Yosemite is designated like a resort. So it's not a preserve. It's like a recreational park. It's like owned by somebody. No, it's owned by California, the state of California. Okay, but it's designated as like a recreation and resort area. Yeah. Like a, like a park, not like a preserve park. So Muir is immediately like, he spends a week in Yosemite that first time. And then he just takes odd jobs anywhere in the Sierras he can and to remain close <laughs> to yeah. Yosemite. And immediately, like, starts working on and thinking about preservation and conservation. He founds the Sierra Club specifically as an organization to defend nature against the wheels of industry and yeah. tourism. He hates seeing tourists showing up in Yosemite. I mean, he's there all the time. Tourists are coming in and out, and he's like, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> he just doesn't like to see certain types of progress happening in Yosemite. Like, Go back to Scotland, yeah. where, where I'm from. Where I'm from. He's like I mentioned earlier, he builds himself a little hut in Yosemite oh, over yeah. a creek. And Which it, uh, Fish and Game Department would be pretty pissed off about now. I know. It's kind of cool. Back, <laughs> I wish I could go back in time to that time period where like, you could just walk to Yosemite and you could just build yourself a hut in Yosemite <laughs> and you could just hang out there if you wanted. But that also led to all these problems that we're talking about. That's, That's why the problem. It, there's too many people. They fucked around and they found out. Now we got to do it differently. That's the thing. The old ways aren't ever going to always work. You have to change. Mir was a huge fan of Humboldt as well. And so he kind of takes the whole thing that Perkins Marsh was talking about and Humboldt was talking about and Darwin saw and takes it another step further because now he's talking about protecting that stuff. So they're not just identifying that everything's in danger. He's saying like, okay, we got to defend it. We got to protect it. We need to act and do it. That's an important part of the process. Absolutely. Because before that, people were just like, everybody stop. (laughs) you know what i mean and that's just not gonna happen stop and do what it's not eat yeah i mean like if quote-unquote progress or like the move the the advancement of technology and science this is gonna happen so we need to safeguard the things we need to safeguard on the way yeah you know what i mean we're not gonna be able to stop it we can't stop and go back we can't stop and get rid of cars yeah so we got to figure out how to creatively make new solutions to new problems as we make them. He kind of realized this and decided that he would get involved with protecting the parks, right? And he became really famous too. People would people would say like, hey, go to Yosemite and find John Muir and he'll give you the greatest tour you've ever seen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, he was incredibly intelligent and he started writing articles and writing essays about protecting parks. At one point in time, he brought Teddy Roosevelt, who was president at the time, yeah. on a two-week backpacking trip with him to Yosemite. Just so we two could just of show them? Just the two of them. Yeah. Again, totally different time period. Teddy Roosevelt's just like, yeah, fuck it, okay. No I'm secret gonna... service? No secret service. There oh. wasn't even a secret service. He just goes out into the woods with Muir for two weeks. Of course, <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt was a, a in, you know famous big game hunter and outdoorsman, so he was super comfortable outside as well. Yeah. Anyway, through these meetings with, with Muir, he convinces Roosevelt to make it a national park, one of the first national parks in mm-hmm. the country, and protects it in a way that it wasn't being protected by the state of California as a recreational area. You, you kind of see the arc of Humboldt first realizing that nature is a thing all the way through to, to Muir deciding it needs to be protected and getting Teddy Roosevelt out there to make it happen, founding the Sierra Club. It's just crazy stuff, man. I just... Yeah, he needs his own episode for sure. He does. He does. There's like stuff I'm not even saying. Like, but it's just, he's just so cool. He's just so cool. One time he was like climbing around. So he was really obsessed with the idea that glaciers formed. He was the first person to put forward the idea that glaciers formed Yosemite Valley. And then it wasn't, the whole mountain range wasn't from an eruption, which is what you were talking about last week with the cataclysm theory. Oh yeah. Like gradual theory or whatever. Mm -hmm. He was one of the first people specifically about Yosemite to say that it was formed by a glacier. So a big part of what he did while he was in the valley was like looking for glacier marks. <laughs> and one of the things he did actually that proved 
to himself that it was formed by a glacier was he put sticks into glaciers that still existed on the mountains around Yosemite and watched them move. Oh, like yeah. he marked their progress. Yeah. Well, also you can just see just parts where the glaciers have made ground the granite smooth. So it's like almost like glass. But you don't know that unless you know that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And he kind of, he was like, I, I mean, he saw it. And he was like, I bet that's from a glacier grinding yeah. that smooth. I'm going to put some markers and see if this glacier's moving. Because yeah. you don't necessarily see the I'm ice I'm going to fuck moving. around and I'm going to find out. He's one of the OG fuck around and find out people. Yeah. In fact, we should put him, <laughs> if we come up with a flag at some point, we've got to have a picture of Mirror on there. Yeah. That guy's super cool. It's one of my favorite. It's one of the most beautiful animals I've ever read about. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so one time, so he was obsessed with the, this idea of glaciers uh, yeah. forming Yosemite Valley, right? One time... He decides to climb up to this crazy ledge right near Yosemite Falls because he thinks he sees a mark from a glacier on it. <laughs> He's like, oh, I bet that's a glacier mark. He climbs out there, falls <laughs> off this ledge, falls behind Yosemite Falls and is able to like scramble and grab onto something and barely hang on to something. But he's under the falls. Is that so, why they call it Yosemite Falls? Because he fell? Yeah. Actually, anyway, he's hanging, <laughs> he's on this ledge underneath the waterfall, being pummeled against the rock behind the waterfall yeah. for like hours. <laughs> <laughs> he's stuck there, and then he finally, pitch dark in the middle of the night, is able to scramble down out from under the waterfall, completely delirious in yeah. like a trance-like state. <laughs> And later he's just like, yeah, Yosemite's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, dude, that was fucking badass. I, I forget the exact quote, but he says something like, uh, Yosemite, for, for as long as the valley talks to me and trusts me, I'll I'll be part of it. Anyway, so John Muir carried on the legacy of Humboldt's you know, love for, I mean, John Muir almost takes the love of nature to like the next level. He's like enamored and excited and yeah. thrilled by his experiences in nature. I mean, Humboldt was too, but John Muir is just like, boom, like just more exuberant and ecstatic <laughs> it's like about it. True, like almost romantic sexual love with nature. Yeah. The way he talks about it is, is he, he was unabashedly connected specifically with the Sequoia and with Yosemite Valley. He wrote like a love letter to Sequoia trees written in ink that he made from Sequoia sap. Ooh. Yeah. It's a real fanboy. He's a big fanboy and he just, Wanted to go live in Yosemite all the time. He had a big ass farm near Fremont. It was owned by his wife's dad, but he like managed it for a while. But he would just pop off to Yosemite whenever he wanted to. Yeah, he had kids. That's a cool dude. I I can't wait to do a full episode. <laughs> yeah, we gotta. I know. Yeah. So Humboldt, conservation, revolution, art, poetry, climate change. He inspired all these things. He even inspired a couple podcasts. Yeah. Two whole episodes, but I Maybe his greatest contribution. No, I mean, the thing is about this legacy of conservation and this legacy of the understanding that the world is a connected place is that we're still a part of it. Yeah. Like, it's ongoing, and, and now it's maybe more important than it ever has been because the effects that we're having on the planet as a species are, like, very quickly going to kill us or result in us not being able yeah. to live here. The mass extinctions we're seeing of animals and especially insects and plant life these are super scary things. Yeah. Like this, this can potentially result in the end of our planet as a habitable place for human beings. We talked about it a little bit in the very first episode, right? We're at a serious crisis point in history. The fourth turning, whether or not that theory is super valid, we're going to explore it more later. You know, I think by any measure, we're at a very critical point in history in yeah. the next 10 years. And if we don't do something about it, and by we, I mean like you and I and everybody in our generation, like if we don't do something about this we're totally fucked so for all you beautiful animals out there <laughs> i encourage you to try and get involved a little bit in whatever way you can uh, maybe we'll put some links in the show notes <laughs> yeah. where you can contribute 350.org do whatever you can uh you know start doing some research start writing letters to politicians i don't yeah. know write us some letters. Oh, really important thing you can do to help out the environment is to send us an email over at beautifulanimalspodcast at gmail.com. Beautiful transition. <laughs> Got to plug wherever you can, man. Yeah, so the legacy of Humboldt continues on to this day, guys. And, and we all need to participate in, in taking care of our beautiful planet and all the beautiful animals on it. We are a beautiful animal that inhabits this planet, but we also do some fucked up shit. So, Which know. is the subject of our podcast. The yeah. fucked up shit we do. The beautiful shit. The fucked up shit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There are many sides to this beautiful, beautiful coin yeah. of animals. Yeah, I guess that's the end there, folks. Uh, <clears throat> hey, 
one thing I want to say. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. It's uh, it's super fun, and we're going to start talking about some important stuff that we just feel the need to voice. Check us out on beautiful.animals.pod. That's on Instagram, and then also the Beautiful Animals Podcast at gmail.com I mentioned earlier in the appropriate time. Okay, guys, thanks so much for listening. But uh, before we go, (laughs) you know, it's language is so important, right? (laughs) And the understanding of language and the the deeper meaning of things that maybe we use on a daily basis plays a huge role into all the decisions we make, right, Tyler? Yeah. Yeah. And actually, there is something I wanted to bring up before the fortune cookie. Yeah. It's an idiom that Mm -hmm. I've heard before. Maybe not. Maybe not even idiom, but something that, that I think a lot of people have heard. Well, how's it go? What's uh? Probably heard it before. It goes, "Life is like a box of chocolates." <laughs> Son of a bitch. <laughs> what does that mean to you? Wait, you mean from <laughs> like you never know which one you're gonna get? Yeah, like from Forrest Gump. Yeah, it means that everything looks brown on the outside, but sometimes <laughs> inside it's a coconut, <laughs> and the coconut one's the bad one. Yeah, here's what it means to me. You don't really know what the experience is going to be until you fucking bite right into it. That's what that means to me. But I was thinking about it earlier today. Life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. What the fuck does that even mean? Because like it, it means <laughs> you can't pr- you can look forward as much as you want and try to view the future as much as you want, but you're not going to you don't know what you're going to get until you're in it, until your mouth's already fucking biting on it. So you don't, you can't, I mean, it's like, don't worry, right? Don't worry about the future. Just live in the moment of eating the stupid coconut chocolate. Yeah, but it's like a box of chocolates. You do know what you're going to get. You open a box of chocolates, you're going to get a bunch of fucking chocolate. You don't know what's inside it. <laughs> it's chocolate. Some is raspberry. <laughs> yeah, some but is coconut. It's some still is fucking nougat. chocolate. No, <laughs> it's not all chocolate. The good ones are like the, I don't even know what it is. Like, not even amaretto. It's like a chocolate cream on the inside with like the hard chocolate on the inside. Those are the good ones. <laughs> the coconut ones are bullshit. And that's not even chocolate, dude. That's chocolate hiding a coconut center. <laughs> it's a fucking lie is what that is. So yeah. You open a box of chocolates, you don't know if you're going to get sweet nothings in your mouth or if you're going to get a fucking lie <laughs> right on your goddamn tongue. Well, life is like a box of chocolates, then, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> well, I don't, that ended up a lot more fun than I thought it would. I feel very strongly about this assorted chocolate. I don't know why you had to bring this up. You knew I was going to get triggered. I don't try, know what the- Trying to trigger you here. Succeeded. <laughs> you just never know what Tyler's going to say. That's what a fucking box of chocolate analogy is. <laughs> upsetting <laughs> did somebody hurt you in a candy store shut up <laughs> shut up that's marvelous <laughs> that's marvelous oh, okay i don't know how that fits with this episode either but <laughs> <laughs> your way to derail me is fucking hardcore dude <laughs> uh, did you not think i was gonna have a reaction to that? <laughs> no it's <laughs> a serious topic I thought you were going to just say, you never know what you're going to get. And then I was going to be like, well, you do know what you're going to get. You're going to get fucking chocolate. Yeah, but you're wrong. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but I think that is what the saying is, what the the point they're actually trying to make in the movie is like, you do know what you're going to get. You're going to get fucking chocolate. No. She's talking about having Forrest Gump as a kid. She's saying you never know what you're going to get. Sometimes you get a kid like Forrest Gump, dude. Mm. She got, she got a hard life. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, would you be interested in opening a fortune cookie today? You know, you know I love fortunes and you know I love cookies. Well, if I got <laughs> an app for you. Yeah, oh, fuck. Your greatest achievement is to get up after falling. Just like John Muir falling down the goddamn waterfall, <laughs> he dude. Fell down, he fell down Holy the waterfall. Holy shit, and he survived. And it was quite an achievement. He got up and he hallucinated. And he loved... Yosemite even more after that. <laughs> yeah. Which yeah. is quite an achievement. Yeah, it's cool to when you're hurt by something to immediately go back to it. Not yeah. an abusive not in an abusive relationship oh, yeah, style. Yeah. Not when but you're... like <laughs> when you fail people say like get right back on the horse, right? Yeah. Like, when a horse I mean it works with people. Or no, it doesn't work with people. <laughs> <laughs> it only works with beautiful animals. <laughs> it doesn't work with people, it works with animals. But when you have a cat that bites the shit out of your hand, keep petting that cat. <laughs> but it probably doesn't want you to pet it anymore. That's probably yeah. why it's biting you. That's but probably. for other stuff, like life, you know, let's say you, you get fired from your job. 
because people think you're not a good accountant because you can't do the numbers. Because you can't count. Just go back to it. Just <laughs> track you try. Go to a find a dumber employer who will hire you. You know what? It's better if we just talk about John Muir. <laughs> <laughs> you know it is. There's a guy that fell down and got right back up. Same with Alexander von Humboldt. He he I mean, they had a hell of a time getting across the fucking Andes Mountains and he wouldn't stop, dude. He was insatiable. He loved work he loved science he loved nature he saw the beauty in all things and the connectedness of the world around him and he brought it to light for such a huge number of people and for generations after him including myself so thank you humble thank you mirror thank you tyler thank you beautiful animal podcast listeners thank you beautiful animals out there don't forget to juice it don't forget to stay hydrated mm-hmm. drink some water out of a waterfall if you feel like it yeah and if you haven't been to yosemite go to yosemite it's my number one advice for anybody <laughs> period if you haven't been there yet just go it'll change your life all right anyway i think that about wraps her up yeah thank you guys so much for listening once again we'll be back next week we'll be back next wednesday with another topic